Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 21st, we are studying Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. God's grace has appeared in Christ Jesus, and that gives shape to our lives right now as we wait for the appearing of our Savior once again on the last day. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you again. Pastor Vandercook, we are looking at Titus 2, 11-14, because that is the epistle reading that is appointed for the Christmas midnight service, if you're following along in the lectionary that the LSB has, the there's a four different services for Christmas. You can have a Christmas Eve, a Christmas midnight, a Christmas dawn, and a Christmas day. And we're looking at the one that's appointed for Christmas midnight. So just as a way of introduction, how is, is this text that we're going to look at, how does it fit into Christmas? And if you connect connect it particularly to midnight, that'd be great. But but particularly, I mean, how does, how does it fit into Christmas? Well, I think in general, probably the reason why this sits here is because you have, or for the reason why this epistle was was probably selected here is that you have this, uh, um, you have this this theme of appearing, the appearing of Jesus, or the appearing of the grace of God, which of course is personified in Jesus, um, and so we have Jesus appearing, and you know, in particular. It seems like the gospel readings, it doesn't seem like it, it just is a fact that the gospel readings are really the ones that are kind of driving the rest of the lectionary. And so when you look at the epist- or the gospel reading for Christmas midnight from Luke chapter 2, where you have the appearance of the angels to the shepherds uh, there outside Bethlehem and uh, and so forth. So they have that, that kind of uh, immediate appearing of them to declare that uh, a savior has been born in Bethlehem. You have that same kind of theme of uh, appearances of Christ, and so I, I really think that's kind of the thing driving this whole thing and its connection to uh, Christmas. Here is that Jesus appears on the scene at this point in time. Yeah, I mean the word appearing is going to show up twice in this text, and that is going to drive this text. And I, I certainly think fits with Christmas, and and maybe even particularly midnight. The the idea of an appearance, something it happens, and right then at midnight seems like an unexpected time, and yet at that time, which is just the right time, we know from Paul that God sent His Son. So this is the the Christmas midnight epistle that we're going to be looking at, and we're kind of jumping into the middle of a letter, which can always be a, a little difficult. So it's helpful to have some context. Pastor Vandercook, help us with a, a little bit of context in terms of just this letter. Who's Titus? What's Paul doing in this letter overall? Yeah, Paul writes this letter to Titus, and uh, along with First and Second Timothy, we we call these three letters of Paul the pastoral epistles. Uh, because they contain a lot of instructions for Timothy and for Titus on how to carry out their ministry as pastors that uh, in churches that have been uh, planted and now 
Paul is is in in a sense kind of leaving Timothy and leaving Titus in these congregations to to serve them. And so you get some qualifications for ministers that are listed in there, how to preach and how to teach the people uh, in their specific context. And there's a lot of similarities between the letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus, almost in the sense that it's it's like Paul was maybe even revising one to send to the other, which, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think we all do that sometimes, that if we're putting together a uh, a note or a letter to one person or to a group of people, we may slightly alter it to to fit a certain situation. But the general message of the letter is going to be similar uh, to the others. And so that's why there's a lot of similarities between those. But uh, as far as uh, Titus is concerned, um, Titus is in Crete, um, that, that little island off of the, of the coast of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And um, uh, it is apparent as you read uh, throughout the first chapter of Titus that uh, Paul traveled with Titus to Crete and uh, apparently left him there to serve the people at uh, the congregation that had been established there. Uh, now, we don't have any, uh, the thing that's interesting about that is that that journey to Crete by Paul is not recorded um, anywhere for us, at least not explicitly. There's there's some illusions, uh, especially at the end of Romans, that there's going to be this 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 uh, missionary journey that Paul is going to take. You know, we do have Paul's missionaries journey, uh, Paul's missionary journeys recorded for us, especially in the Book of Acts, and some of them in great detail. But uh, we don't have uh, Crete being detailed as a place of his visitation. But nonetheless, uh, it's evident from uh, the early verses of of this letter to Titus that that Paul did travel there with Titus, and Paul left Titus behind there to uh, uh, to serve the people there. You know what you said about the the similarities between the pastoral epistles. I mean, you know, you you serve a dual parish there in Arkansas, and I'm I'm guessing you don't write two entirely different sermons on a Sunday morning for each congregation. No, I haven't gotten to that level yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd need maybe a, an extra couple days in the week, maybe to pull that off. But uh, yeah, no. But I, you know, I, I've thought about that about how um, about how uh, how to do that uh, perhaps uh, more effectively sometimes because it is true that every congregation is different. My my two congregations are are not the same. Uh, they're in different types of areas. Both of them, and obviously in the in similar areas. Otherwise, I wouldn't serve two at a time. But uh, but very different people at both congregations and and very different backgrounds and so there are some there are some challenges there that that have to be met but yeah right and so yeah you're right I mean in in the one sense you have the word of God is the same uh, we're preaching the same word of God to the to God's people no matter what but the way in which that applies to the lives of the people does vary depending on their situation. Right. And, and you can see those differences between, I think particularly of first Timothy and Titus, second Timothy has a, a different character to it because Paul is very close to the end of his life. But there are a lot of similarities, particularly in the stru- instructions that, that give pastors, you know, this is who pastors should be. This is how pastors should approach different types of people. You see a lot of similarities between Timothy and Titus in that. Although you do see, and I think this is particularly true more of Titus, at least from from what I remember, that, that in Titus, you get a, a little bit more of a flavor for the people there in Crete 
that Paul tells Titus how to how to deal with some of them. There's a it's rather well, I I chuckle at least a little bit where where, <laughs> where Paul quotes, you know, in verse twelve of chapter one, what what one of the own Cretans said about them, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So you see a little bit of the contextualization there that Paul gives to Titus, and yet it is the same pastoral ministry, whether Titus is there in Crete. Or Timothy, I think he served in Ephesus for a while and, and probably other places, you know, or or still today, whether you're in Arkansas or Central Texas or wherever a pastor may be, that word of God, you know, and the way the pastor approaches the ministry to the people, there's going to be a lot of similarities because it is one God we serve and he's given us his one word in Holy Scripture. Yeah, I was going to pull out that exact verse. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. That's that always that always jumps out at me whenever I read Creed is just the the analysis of the people. You know, uh, Paul in pointing that out says, "Hey, even the Cretans, even even one of their own says that this is true." You know, <laughs> so yeah, but uh, but but it does highlight the fact that there are some uh, some some unique characteristics about people that deserve uh, the attention of the pastor. Mm. So with with thinking already a little bit here about Titus chapter 1, you know, we're going to be looking at some verses in chapter 2. What has Paul been talking about already in this letter to Titus leading up to the section we're going to look at today? Uh, yeah, well, in chapter 1, you know, after his typical greetings, you you uh, start getting into then some, some general instructions, uh, qualifications for the office of the ministry, um, you know, and so that serves as a way to remind um, uh, to remind uh, Titus exactly what his ministry ought to look like, how he ought to conduct himself, and so forth. Uh, and kind of in the same way, it, it reminds me, and this is fresh in my mind because I was at an installation yesterday, each time we install a pastor at a new place, we go through those same qualifications. We read them as part of the installation, right? Uh, you know, and it's it's not like we're saying all of a sudden, oh, we better check and make sure this guy's qualified. We've already established the fact that he is qualified for the ministry, but it serves as a reminder to uh, the people, uh, but also and perhaps even more so a reminder to the one being installed. This is how you ought to conduct your ministry. Uh, this is how it ought to look. Uh, and, you know, we've already determined that you're qualified, but let's keep it that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just I was agreeing with you. That's I mean that's a good example of how a text like Titus does show up in the life of the church and and how it gets used. So keep Paul gives these qualifications right away. How does he continue? Well, and then after he finishes with those um, with those qualifications, then he has the specific uh, the specific challenges that Titus is going to encounter at Crete, which we already touched on, obviously. Um, but then, you know, getting into chapter two uh, in the verses that precede where we're going here, uh, he starts giving some very specific instructions about how um, various groups of Christians ought to uh, conduct themselves as Christians in their various vocations. Uh, you know, so, I mean, he has instructions for how older men ought to live and how young, older women ought to live and how younger women ought to live and younger men. And then finally, he also gives instructions for uh, slaves and how they ought to relate to their masters. Yeah, I mean, Titus, when you read through Titus, and, and it can be done rather quickly, it's only three chapters long. 
it is a very practical book in the sense, I mean, as you're addressing here, that Paul in several places says this is how various groups of people should act. And then coming up again in, in chapter three, you're going to get more of that. It's Chapter two has more of the feel of a, a table of duties where it's divided into various groups of people. Chapter three seems a little more general. But, but what's striking to me about the letter to Titus with those very, again, practical sections is that Paul goes back and forth between those with these very doctrinal sections, which is what we're going to look at today. I mean, it's, it's very doctrinal. There's going to be practical application, of course. And then, of course, it, in Titus chapter 3, which is actually the text we're going to be looking at tomorrow, it's also one of these Christmas epistles, we get that wonderfully known passage about baptism that that shows up in the small catechism as well. So, I mean, that's what I, I really love about the letter to Titus is that, it, I mean, in addition to being a, a pastoral epistle and so holding a, a special place for me in that regard, but just as as Christian instruction, you see how those two things go, go very much together, the true doctrine of, of who Christ is and what he's done, and then what that means for my day-to-day life. Yeah, and that, that of course, really fits in well when we look at uh, Christmas, because the historical facts of Christmas are there every year for us, and everybody knows them. I mean, everybody's seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special and everything else. Everybody knows that, uh, you know, Jesus is born, and we've all got nativity sets, uh, you know, in our churches and in our sometimes in our front yards and the front yards of our churches and all over, you know, if your town still allows it, you've got them in the town square and things like that. So everybody knows the historical facts of it. Uh, but, you know, there's the there's the kind of the implications of that. Um, Jesus has been born. The Savior has been born. Now, what does that mean for us? And how does that uh, mean that we ought to respond to that, and how do we live as Christians now? Hmm. Well, and I think that's where a text like Titus 2, and again, Titus 3 that we'll look at tomorrow, really is is a very helpful text on for Christmas midnight, you know, at that, that time where you're just sort of watching in wonder at what's happening, and, and you get that in Luke chapter 2. Titus allows you to take a step back and say, okay, well, what's the point? Why does it matter that there's this baby in the manger? Why does it matter that the angels are singing to the shepherds? The, the, and this is true, I think, of the epistles in general, but particularly for a day like Christmas, that, that they help us to interpret these events theologically and say, okay, here's the facts. Now, what does that mean for me? And that's, that's what this text from Titus, I think, is really going to help us with. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, Pastor Vandercook, one one more thing, just briefly on on Titus, and and we kind of I, I wanted to continue that conversation, but there was another thought that I had about Titus generally. It, it's almost it's a little bit different in terms of the order than for some of other Paul's other epistles. And here's what I mean: generally, when I think of Paul's epistles, I think of him laying out, you know, here's what Christ has done, and then now here's the what does that mean for my life. In the book of Titus, at least in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it seems that he reverses that order. You know, you, you mentioned at the beginning of chapter 2, you have this table of duties where he lists, what is, older men, older women. Uh, let's say I'm trying to go through the order, young women, and then young men, and then slaves. But now we're going to get the doctrinal section that comes right after that. And then in chapter 3, it's going to be another one of these, you know, here's how you live, and now here's the doctrine. It's it's backwards from the way that I'm used to it, and and maybe backwards from the way that I generally preach it too. I think I, I generally preach, you know, you know what I'm saying? And it's just, maybe it's worth yeah. a moment's re- reflection. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously the two are tied together and, you know, they have that link uh, right at the beginning of, of verse 11, you know, into the verses that we're going to talk about the word for there. And uh, that word for always ties it back to what came before that. Uh, and so, you know, yeah, it is it is a little bit of a different um, uh, um, different ordering of things, perhaps than we're used to. And I think that's true that usually whenever we hear preaching in our churches, it does the opposite. I mean, I, I, I'm, I certainly do that as well, I think, and that's turn those things the other direction. Um, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps we should follow the example of Paul from time to time and not let our preaching be so formulaic. Maybe that's the thing that maybe sure. thinks uh, that kind of slips into my head there, too, is that, uh, well, maybe this is an example of, oh, well, maybe we can do this the other way, too, and it still works. Right. You know, but... Uh, Right. Well, and that's, and that's part of the reason it, again, it stands out to me just thinking through what my sermons often look like. They, they usually do look the opposite. Here's what Jesus has done. Now here's what that means. And again, they're, they're tied together, but just the, you know, the reversal of the order, I suppose you see in the book of Titus it is a helpful reminder to let the word of God preach to us as it comes, not to try to, to make it formulaic, as you said, and, and to, you know, as it fits to let our sermons do the same. So, that's, a, I think, a helpful introduction to the book of Titus as a whole. Again, we are looking at Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, so let's read the text. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the text for today. That's Titus 2, 11 to 14. And again, that is the epistle reading appointed for Christmas midnight. Pastor Vandercook, we're going to have plenty of opportunity to dig in very deeply to a lot of these words that Paul throws out there. But just give us the overall sense. What is Paul saying in this short text? Well, he's saying that because Christ has come and because he has brought salvation to us, because he has appeared, that now our lives ought to reflect the fact that Christ has come uh, and that we ought to be, you know, to, to just borrow straight from the text, we ought to be zealous for good works. It ought to be something that we uh, desire to do as his people as a reaction to the salvation that he has given for us. Instead of being trained by the world, uh, trained by the ungodliness that we see all around us, let us be trained by the grace of God and uh, live lives that reflect that. Yeah. So with that in mind, that summary of this text, let's let's dig in. You You mentioned this right away. For is the first word of this text, which links us backwards. So what is what is the link between what Paul has been saying and what we're getting here? Yeah, so we just had all those instructions about how to live as a Christian. You know, that uh, that that uh, you have the old the um, older men are to be sober minded, dignified and self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine or to much wine. They're to teach what is good. They're to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Um, the, the young men are to be self-controlled. Uh, slaves are to be submissive to their masters. You know, there's, there's more there than that, but, but that's, that's kind of the idea. You have all these instructions about how we ought to live, as you call it, a table of duties. 
And so then the question might naturally come after that, well, why do I have to live like that? Uh, you know, why? What what makes it to where this is the way that I should live? Why all these instructions about how to live in this way? And the answer is, well, it's because the grace of God has appeared. Um, that's why. Uh, and because because that is now the case, now um, we we conduct ourselves differently than the rest of the world. We're supposed to look different than everybody else. Uh, we're supposed to have a, a different um, uh, worldview, a different uh, way that we treat others uh, and those around, you know, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just kind of answering the question that's not asked, you know, it's, it's the, it's the uh, rhetorical action here of, uh, we gave the instructions. Here's why we gave the instructions. Mm. Well, and I mean, it, this is important because it does, I mean, it gives that the life that he describes in verses one through 10, it gives the basis for it. This isn't, and, and I think this is why the word, you know, grace is so important here. This life that he describes in verses one through 10 isn't isn't the life that we have because we're trying to earn something or or whatever you want to come up with it's because God's grace has appeared the the giving even though he he's got as we said earlier he's got it in the reverse order than normally we seem to think about it he is still keeping things in order with this the reason for this life is because of what God has done by his grace so so help us with those words pastor Vanderkirk. I mean the grace of God this is key Christian terminology. It's the name of the church here in Smithville. We use it all the time, but maybe don't take the time to reflect on what that is actually conveying. What is the grace of God? Well, in order to have the grace of God, you have to uh, you have to have the cross. You have to have Christ crucified in order to have grace. That's that, that gift that we did not earn that was won by Christ on the cross, earned by him, and won for us by him. Uh, and, you know, as far as Christmas goes, that then shifts our focus to the to, again, the why. Why is why do we have a baby in a manger here and why are we excited about that? Uh, yes, the birth of babies is exciting no matter what. Uh, you know, you're a father just as I am. We know how exciting that is. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, what's what's so special about this one? And the, the thing that's so special about this one is that this one is going to be uh, crucified for our sins. That's what's special about this baby. Uh, you know, I, I always, you know, I, I think you can always look around at uh, pretty much every Christian is, is okay with uh, having nativity scenes, you know, in front of their church or in their home or whatever. Um, but um uh, but the one thing that that does give a lot of people pause is is something like a crucifix, and often the response of the uh, those who would, uh, or you know those those who would bristle at the sight of a crucifix, they'll they'll give an argument that says, well, Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Well, he also didn't stay in the manger, and in fact, the fact that he didn't stay in the manger is a whole lot more important than the fact that he didn't stay on the cross, <laughs> because if we just have Jesus, a baby in a manger, and not a Jesus who dies then the Jesus in the manger, quite frankly, doesn't doesn't matter. It's mm -hmm. just another baby. I mean, it does matter. <laughs> I mean, babies always matter. I shouldn't say that. Right. But you get you know what I'm saying, though. I mean, it's 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 no different than the birth of of, of another child. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's where I mean, so the way you're explaining this, that the grace of God has appeared. It sounds like we should under. Of course, when we hear it on Christmas, 
we're thinking, ah, the baby is there in the manger. God has come in our flesh. And certainly, I mean, I think, and this I think is maybe Christmas morning at some point, where, where you get the gospel reading from John, and he reflects for us on what it means that the word became flesh. I mean, that's that seems to be what, that's what the context of this epistle does when we hear it on Christmas. The grace of God has appeared. Okay, God's here. He's come in our flesh. He's come to be our Savior. But we really need to have the full story in mind, or or Christmas is, well, I guess we should, we want to think of Christmas as more than just a, a happy birth announcement, but the totality of what Jesus is going to come to do. That's what's going on with the grace of God appearing here in, in the first verse of this text. Right, yeah. You don't have the grace of God appearing until uh, you have the crucified and risen Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you think about the the timing and the context, of course, when Paul writes this. Of course, this is well after the fact of of Christ's birth. It's it's after his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Uh, you know, and so this is this is in the early church already. So when when he's saying that the grace of God has appeared, uh, he's he's thinking about the totality, as you said it. You know, it's the totality of Christ and his his coming and his ministry among them, uh, among the disciples and among uh, people of, of, um, of, of uh, the, the people of Israel. And then, of course, his, uh, his death and his resurrection and his ascension. That's, that's the completion of the whole thing. You've got to have all of it. Uh, just Jesus born at Bethlehem on Christmas night, that's not the full grace of God. The grace of God uh, is coming and, you know, it certainly points forward to that. But you don't have the whole thing unless you have uh, the crucified and risen Jesus. Right. Well, and, and that's where, you know, I, I think we we would say that the grace of God does appear on Christmas. But we, we have to understand how it reaches its fulfillment. And this is where, you know, like, I guess I'm thinking like 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, you know, we preach Christ crucified. Well, well what, does that, what does that mean? You know, that, that means ultimately— again, the, the totality of what Jesus has done. And and anytime we think about, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about like throughout the church year. So we're celebrating the nativity of our Lord right now. It won't be long before we celebrate the epiphany of our Lord and the baptism of our Lord and then the transfiguration of our Lord, all the way, you know, getting to the, the passion of our Lord and the resurrection of our Lord and then the ascension of our Lord and so forth. I mean, every, every time we, we get these various feast days throughout the church year, Anytime you start to preach on one aspect of Christ's work, you, you really have to look at the totality of it to get this fullness of what it means that the grace of God has appeared. So Christmas, the grace of God appears, yes, but if all you see is the baby in the manger and you don't know anything else, say if you don't have the song of the angels, then then you're missing something. You need the fullness of this story to really understand what this grace of God is. Yeah, that that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioned just and this is probably a little bit of a tangent, but the the you you mentioned epiphany in there, uh, and in particular, you know that word, uh, the Greek word for epiphany is that same word that appears here. The grace of God has appeared. Uh, so yeah, I mean anyway. So I mean yeah, it's it's really the whole yeah. You have to have the whole thing, and and you have to have the whole thing in mind whenever you're you're looking at these texts. You can't just isolate the events. That's right. So Paul is helping us to see the fullness of the grace of God with this text from Titus 2 on Christmas, pointing us to the full work of Jesus Christ. We're going to keep looking at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Titus 2 with Pastor David Vandercook. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 21st. We are studying Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we're looking at that very first phrase of our text, that the grace of God has appeared. On Christmas, we're thinking about the baby in the manger, certainly, but Paul is inviting us with that to consider all of Christ's work, how in his death, resurrection, and ascension, that grace of God has appeared, and it's done something. It's brought salvation for all people. Take us into that next phrase of verse 11. Well, to tie it back into the previous 10 verses, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, you have these instructions for people of all walks of life, and this verse says that salvation has come for all people. So that's going to include all of those people that were just listed earlier. Uh, I think this ties in really well, too, again, with the uh, Luke chapter 2 text, the gospel reading uh, for Christmas midnight, where you have the angels proclaiming this message to, of all people, the shepherds. Uh, not that we don't want to denigrate shepherds, really, but I mean, the fact is that uh, usually when you have a uh, a significant figure in the world that's born, whether it be a ro- you know royalty or something like that, you typically announce first to what we would consider the most important people in the world, uh, you know, the, the, the royalty. So, you know, why didn't the angels go and announce it to King Herod in, in, uh, in Jerusalem? Well, I guess maybe because he might have tried to kill Jesus right away or something because he tried to do that later. But uh, you know, why, why is this going to, you know, why didn't they go to the, the chief priests or something like that, you know, but instead, no, they go out and tell the shepherds. Uh, and that does uh, send the message to us that this salvation is an all-inclusive salvation for all people of all walks of life. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, of course, you know, you think of uh, verses like the, the, um, uh, the institution of holy baptism in Matthew 28, make disciples of all nations. Uh, and the same kind of idea here is being expressed by um, by St. Paul, salvation for all people. Well, I mean, just looking at, looking at that text from Luke 2, when the angel speaks to the shepherds, I mean, there's an echo there. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All people. Right? Yeah. And then, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And so the word Savior and then salvation here in Titus chapter 2, I mean, I think there's, there are some echoes here in Titus 2 of, of what gets— what gets recorded there in Luke chapter two and coming up again, you know, we're going to talk about the glory of God. So glory to God in the highest that's in, in Luke chapter two. And again, more, more salvation language with Jesus being called savior again. So lots of, lots of echoes. And, and again, I mean, you know, Paul and Luke traveled together at various moments. So I don't think we should be too surprised to see those, those echoes between Luke and Paul, particularly in, in all of Holy scripture, of course, but to see those echoes, I think, on Christmas, that's that's something that is worth paying attention to. So, okay, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
and now this this grace of God it does something. And this is, I mean, this word is not the word that I usually think of when I think of grace. That the grace of God trains us to do something. I think of God, you know, God's grace is a gift, but it also it it trains me to do something. And actually, the way that Paul phrases it, it's you have first what it trains me to not do. And then what it trains me to do. So takes in that first part of verse 12. What does God's grace train us not to do or train us to renounce is the language he uses here. Well, the first thing it says is to uh, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So that's the thing that we are renouncing. And there's, you know, if you if you're familiar with the uh, baptismal liturgy, we we um, uh we ask the person being baptized, do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? And of course, the answer is yes, I renounce them. Uh, you know, this idea that uh, we are um, not going to be uh, following the ways of uh, the devil from this point forward, uh, we are renouncing him. Um, there's, there's, there's all, yeah. So you have that, that, that language is familiar in a way, but here, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness and worldly passions go together. They fit together. So if one is godless, uh, and it's really an oxymoron to say that anybody uh, does not have a God, uh, because if one is godless, that is, they do not follow the one true God, then their God ultimately becomes whatever worldly passions that they have. Uh, And so you first have that ungodliness. So the, the ungodliness leads to worldly passions. The two fit together that if we do not have, um, uh, if we do not have the one true God, if we, if God does not dwell within us, then the thing that's going to guide us is not going to be God and his word, but rather it's going to be whatever it is that pleases me, uh, whatever pleases my flesh. Well, it's, so it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same, same thing whether you're whether you're a christian or you're not a christian the the faith and the life go together seems to be what's what's happening here so for the christian paul's described what the life looks like and he's going to give us more of that in, in this text and so the reason that the christian's life looks like this is because of the grace of god for the non-christian the faith that would be the the ungodliness whatever and and they're you know speaking very broadly so whatever your idol is that's going to lead to a certain way of life. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, whether you're whether you're a Christian or not, the faith and the life go together. Paul, obviously, is very clearly pointing you toward the Christian faith and the Christian life, and then that grace that's there in that Christian faith, that's what pulls you away from both the, the idolatry and then the false living that accompanies it. Yeah, right. And that's probably the best way to look at this, because obviously, if we think about just taking at face value when we say that grace trains us for something, that almost sounds like a confusion of law and gospel, that we're saying that the the grace is somehow uh, forcing us to do something. But it's 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 the idea that it uh, and I think training is the right word there. And and it's the uh, word that Paul uses, obviously, the the training uh, training is the idea that it, it reprograms us uh, from the way that we would think worldly thoughts and to instead think godly thoughts. And it uh, and so, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a sanctification going on here and this uh, this growth in sanctification as time goes forward, that more and more our desires are turned more and more away from godlessness and turned toward godly things. Mm. 
Well, and yeah, I think I think sanctification is a good word to use here. As this, you know, how does this grace of God? How does it manifest itself in my life right now? It does. It it pulls me away from the ungodliness. It pulls me away from the worldly passions, and it pushes me toward, as he says, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. You know, I mean, so. The grace of God has saved me right now. I I am saved as a Christian because of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a that's a done deal. But I'm also living in this present age to use Paul's language here right now. And so that grace of God is also working in me right now. And it's I mean it's it's actually it's happening in that sense. And that's and I think that's, you know, justification and sanctification how they do while we do need to distinguish them so that we speak correctly and speak with Scripture, we can't separate them either. And I think Paul, of course, is the master at holding these two things together here in Titus 2. Yeah, that's right. And uh, ultimately, what it's what what the grace of God does is it, um, you know, it turns us back outward instead of inward. Um, you know, from the fall into sin. And up until now, we have this this inclination towards sin, this inclination to seek what is best for me. And what the grace of God does is it it turns us back outward, um, not looking after our own interests, not looking for our own well-being, but rather constantly looking to see what it is I can do to serve my neighbor. Uh, and you know, as as Jesus says in um, in Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. And so the tie-in between the works that we do for our neighbor and the works that we do for God are there, that works done for the neighbor are works that are done for God. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's the, that's the direction of the Christian life then is outward, not inward, seeking what's best for me. Well, and I mean, think that sounds like very much like the positive sense that Paul gives as the verse continues to live self-controlled upright godly lives which I, I think is I mean again he's he's talked about that previously in this chapter with that table of duties yeah that's right and you know the self-controlled part uh, you know is self-controlled upright and godly uh, you know there, there's examples given earlier not given toward drunkenness and things like that things that would take away the control that we have over ourselves, uh, you know, whether that literally be um, uh, drinking or gluttony or things things of that nature, uh, but it it uh, the the Christian doesn't engage in these things because those are the things that that uh, give our control away uh, to something else. But instead, uh, we want to make sure that we are the ones who are the um, uh, mastering our flesh. Uh, you know, in a sense, and that that almost sounds like a, a Lenten exercise, you know, like mm -hmm. fasting and so forth. That we're that part of that is um, uh, part of that is is asserting control. Um, you know, not letting our 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 belly rule us uh, and things like that. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here a little bit, but that's the that's the thought there that, that comes to my mind is just that 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 self-controlled means that uh, you know. I am controlling my desires, and that that uh, the desires that I have are shaped by the grace of God that has appeared. That's what's controlling my desires, not my own um, uh, worldly passions and lusts. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think I mean this all. Uh, another key point in this verse is that all of this is happening. This training to renounce and training to live. 
is happening in the present age. And I, I think, you know, the present age in which we live is not a good one. Paul calls it an evil age elsewhere. I mean, this is this is the, oh, I think that's in Galatians chapter one, where he talks about this present evil age. You know, we're, we're living in a world that isn't a friend to doing these things. The, the present age is not a friend to training us to renounce ungodliness, and it's not a friend to helping us to live in, in self-controlled, upright, godly ways. And so uh, how much more than do we need this this grace of God to live in this present age? I mean, the, that's and I, I love how the this passage does move that way. We've talked about the grace of God has appeared. There's a, a past tense. Now we're talking about, well, what does that mean for this present age in which we live? And, and it it is that grace of God that alone can train us in this way. Yeah, that's right. And and it's it's uh, that that part about the present age and living in a world that is often against us, that just further underscores the importance of uh, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Uh, you know, back in verse eight of this uh, of this same chapter, you you have Saint Paul urging Titus to teach the people to live in a certain way, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. I mean, how often do we have people that'll um, speak ill of Christianity because of something that is done by Christians that is not good? Uh, you know, it's not that nobody else in the world is doing these bad things, but it's that this person's supposed to be a Christian and this person is professing that this is the way that we ought to live, but yet their their life looks nothing like it, or they did this this terrible thing. And so, I mean, it gives a black eye to to Christianity as a whole whenever we don't live in this way. Uh, and it gives ammunition to the opponents of Christianity because they can point out and say, well, Christians are no different than anybody else. Uh, they live the same way. There's nothing laudable about them at all. Uh, and that's what that's what St. Paul is urging us against here, saying, no, you need to you need to um, train by the grace of God. This is how you need to live, because. Um, if you don't, it is going to reflect poorly on, on, uh, on Christ's church and on Christ Himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and and not only that, but also the just the fact that these things are are bad things. That, that's why, yeah, right? I mean, that's why God's <laughs> grace saved us from them in the first place. And yes. some, you know, sometimes we forget that that the salvation it's it's from these things, ungodliness and worldly passions may appeal to our sinful flesh, but they're actually bad. We need to be saved from them. And then he's, he's yeah, also— Yeah, the idea is that ahead. you're supposed to stop doing them. Well, because <laughs> right, they're bad. <laughs> we, yeah. we shouldn't want to. Right, yeah. And then and then the flip side, then, is that we have been— Well, okay, so I've been saved from that. Well, then, now what? Well, then you've been saved for these things. The, you know, the self-controlled, the upright, the godly life, that's actually a good thing. And it's actually— and again, our sinful flesh doesn't realize this, which is why we need the, to be trained. This is a, a struggle. You know, I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans 7, that, that we need to, to be trained to seek after those good things because our sinful flesh wouldn't naturally want that. Yeah, that's right. That's so, right. So, Pastor Vandercook, this is, I mean, again, all founded on the grace of God, and we, we should never forget that. As, as much as, you know, the law is going to accuse us here, as we, we recognize we have not always lived this way. It is the grace of God that has appeared, and in that grace we have been saved, even as we live now, and, and that sanctification does happen in the present age. But we're also looking forward to something. So we've got the past 
the grace of God has appeared, the present age, that's where we're living right now, but we're also waiting. We're waiting for something. And here that word appearing shows up again. So take us into to verse 13. What are we waiting for? Yeah, verse 13 is pointing us forward to the, the second coming of Jesus. And the the difference here is that, you know, the, the, when Jesus comes onto the scene at Christmas, yes, you know, it's a... Um, uh, for for us Christians, looking back on it, it it's an amazing event. Uh, we love the, the the biblical accounts of what happened. Uh, you know what you know the angels singing to the shepherds in Luke chapter two. But uh, even though that happens, it is a rather quiet event. Uh, it's not something that everybody in the world knows is happening. I mean, we find out, of course, uh, from Matthew's gospel that. We do have the uh, the Magi from the East who are aware of the birth of Christ, and they travel to see him. But other than the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, and, um, well, I mean, of course, the angels, and those Magi who come a couple of years later, this, this birth of the Savior is largely under wraps. Uh, it's not really something that is out there yet, and that's Part of the reason that you know we have the we, that's part of the thing we celebrate in the season of Epiphany is Jesus' mm-hmm. continual revealing, uh, you know, as Son of God and and Son of Man uh, at the same time. But uh, but that stands in stark contrast to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That second coming is one that nobody's going to miss. It's not going to be a secret. Uh, when Jesus returns on the last day, because he's going to return in glory. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So Jesus, in his fully glorified body, uh, will appear. And that's what we wait for now, uh, is that, you know, yes, Christ has come. Uh, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Uh, Christ has ascended. But now the thing that we wait for is that second coming of Jesus. Mm. And and apart from and this is where I mean I want to try to relate these two appearings uh, even more closely that it, apart from the first coming the first time that it's the grace of God that's appeared it's maybe I can say it like this the only way that we will receive the appearing of the glory of God on the last day as our blessed hope is if the grace of God has appeared first I mean I think it has to go in that order we have to have the grace of God appear for Christ to do all of that for us. So that when he appears on the last day, it's our—it's actually our blessed hope and not our greatest fear. Yeah, well, yes, I think so, uh, definitely. And then also you have the, the fact that that grace of God continues its appearing, even in the present time, continuing yeah. to train us and prepare us. Uh, because that ultimately is what the life of the Christian is and the purpose of the church is to prepare us to die a blessed death or to prepare us for Christ's second coming uh, so that we're ready when he's here. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and, the, and that only happens because of the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we're able to remain in the church and that we're kept in the church um, uh, through the means of grace, if you want to go that direction as well. Well, that, that is actually where my mind was going, was toward the, the means of grace. And I know the word appear is used of the past tense of what Christ has done his first appearing, and it's used in the the future tense of his second coming. And I know it's not used in that the present sense, but I do think that that's related. That this, you know, the appearing of Christ or the appearance of Christ the first time, and the appearing of Christ on the last day, 
Well, how do we find out about it? We, we find out about it through the means of grace, through the appearing of Christ that actually happens in the preaching of the gospel, that this good news has been preached to us. And so I know, because of what's happening in the present tense through those means of grace, I know that these appearances of Christ, the first and the last, those are both for me, for my good. And I, I do think we should connect that. Well, yeah, and of course, those present things that come to us, the means of grace coming to us, tie us back into that history anyway, mm. you know, because it's, you know, what what is it that uh, um, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, yeah. we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, you know, so we're we're always pointing back to that event and it's it's relating back to that. So there's that that historical tie in always. Mm. Well, and then and then forward too, right? Because as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, right? There's that, that yeah, forward right. focus as well. Which Paul has here. So, and I, I mean, I love this having having looked through so many of the epistle readings from Advent and seeing how those epistle readings are always pointing us forward to the the coming of Christ on the last day. So even on Christmas, we're getting that same proclamation from Paul, looking forward again to that final appearance. That that when I see that baby in the manger and know the one that he's he's the one who's died, risen, and ascended for me, I also should be looking for him to come on the last day. That, too, is, is part of the Christmas proclamation. I just love that. So, Paul, Paul, well, go ahead if you want to respond to that. I also want to talk about verse 14, because there's a lot there, too. Yeah, no, well, I was just going to say that it, it does almost serve kind of as a hinge in the church here, because you have this, as you said, you have the uh, the end times that we talk about quite a bit during Advent, especially, um, you know, the the uh, the second Sunday of, of Advent, at least in the in the historic lectionary, is very much focused on the end times. And then, uh, you know, you have the uh, you have Epiphany that follows Christmas, which is the revealing or shining forth, appearing of Christ. And here we have uh, a text that is all about all of those things about the the appearing of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, it's anyway. it's it's remarkable how Paul just. Ra- I mean, it's just such a beautiful little sermon here in these four verses. Verse verse fourteen. Then Paul takes us again back to what Christ has done in his first appearance, it sounds like. Christ is the one who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from lawlessness, also to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a lot there, Pastor Brandon Cook. Take us into verse 14. Sure, sure. Uh, Okay, so um, first of all, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. this, This gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that Prior to Christ claiming us as his own, we are, um, we are uh, unable uh, to even work anywhere towards um, converting ourselves. You know, well, we never are able to convert ourselves, but I mean, we're unable to even advance toward Christ at all. We are, we are uh, dead in sin and trespasses. Uh, we've been redeemed from that lawlessness, though. We've been bought back from it. And so... Uh, you know, the implication there is that you're done with that now, and instead now you've been purified. Uh, and it's important to note that the one doing the purifying uh, is Christ himself. Christ is the one who gave himself up for us. He is the one who purified for himself a people for his own possession. Uh, and while he doesn't use um, marriage language here, it does pop into my mind just simply because of that idea of the uh, the bride who comes for her groom um, uh, dressed in white, uh, is, you know, that white, that color of purity is the bride at an average wedding. Perfect. Well, not by a long shot, but she's presented that way to, 
the bridegroom. And in the case of Christ and his bride, the church, he is the one who purifies her that that uh, she might be presented to the father as holy and blameless. Uh, and so it's his possession. He's purified it himself. And now that you've been redeemed from the lawlessness and you've been purified, uh, now good works. That is, you urgently want to do them. You strive to do good works. You're looking for good works to do, uh, to help, um, uh, to both serve the neighbor and God. Pastor Vandekirk, we have about three minutes left on the morning. There's so much here in these few short verses from Titus chapter 2. As you reflect upon this, help us again to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come at Christmas and who will come again on the last day. Yeah, well, again, I think that this this serves as a, as a beautiful text. And, and quite frankly, I'm guilty of not paying it much attention, I, I think, a lot of times, because uh, you know, I think it, most of the time when it comes to Christmas, I'm just like most people. I just want to talk about the uh, uh, the the romanticism of the of the birth of Jesus and get into that. Uh, but this text really gives you the the implication of that. Uh, it it implies, you know, it shows, hey, this is why Jesus came into the flesh. This is why he was born. He was born so that the grace of God might appear. That is, he was born that he might uh, take our place on the cross and suffer and die for us, and that uh, we, the wrath of God, we poured out on him instead of us, and that now because that has happened, that grace of God, the righteousness uh, that has come, uh, the righteousness of God that was won by Christ, his righteousness credited to us now manifests itself in that we no longer uh, live lives filled with worldly passions and lusts, but rather we turn our attention toward living godly lives. Um, and, you know, and looking back at some of those things, being self-controlled, being upright, uh, and having these instructions, and continually being shaped by the fact uh, that God has uh, sent Christ to purify us, um, that, that, we, that we strive to live in this manner, that that uh, first of all serves God and our neighbor, but also serves as a witness to the rest of the world of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Pastor David Vandercook is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us today with Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about this epistle text or any of the other Advent or Christmas epistles, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.